Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, I hear the music. That's the sign to uh, turn on the microphone. So uh, here we go. Welcome to the FitLight Broadcast. My name is Brian O'Kelly. I will be your host for today's class. I am a Bible teacher, and hopefully you are interested in being a Bible student. Uh, That would be the reason to uh, check out the FitLight Broadcast. Uh, Named after uh, the psalm that says, uh, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my world. And so hopefully uh, that is what will happen today as we will provide some light for your path as you seek to follow Jesus. Um, And if you're not a Christian, uh, great, uh, welcome, and at least you'll know what these crazy people called Christians think and believe, and hopefully you'll find some value in learning about that. So let's get started. Today we will be in Chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew uh, continued. We started this a few weeks ago, and uh, today we will continue with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, offering today uh, my best uh, understanding and explanation of the fifth and sixth Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, as well as um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so let's jump right into this with a word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for uh, providing us with the value system of Jesus that we can take advantage of learning about what he uh, wants us to know. So again, chapter five of the gospel of Matthew, if you haven't been following this, opens with uh, several statements of Jesus, what are called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes offer a perspective on how Christians are to live and uh, what the Christian life is about and how to evaluate our decisions, our attitudes. And in each category uh, here, people who uh, Jesus says, the so-and-so are blessed, blessed are the, and then he says four. Uh, and so we get a, a who is blessed and why they're blessed. And so uh, we will get through uh, the next two Uh, which are the fifth and sixth Beatitudes today, Uh, and hopefully finishing up in the next episode with the last two and maybe a little more depending on time and opportunity. So, verse 7, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So, what is mercy and what does it mean to be merciful? Well, I've often heard mercy described in the context of punishment and as a con uh, a contrast to grace by the way a live chat is available on um, on facebook on x and on uh 
uh, YouTube. So if you want to, uh, ask a question during the show, you're, you're welcome to do that. Um, I've often heard mercy described in the context of punishment as a contrast to grace, right? For example, grace is described as unmerited favor and uh, mercy as unmerited forgiveness. And and that's probably okay. Um, God's grace is often described as this gift of salvation or as spiritual gifts, uh, and we've done nothing to to deserve them, right? Uh, the word grace is the same word that we get the, the word uh, gift for spiritual gifts for. And so God's mercy is described often in that we are not receiving a punishment that we are due, okay? This is a a true definition of mercy, but it's an incomplete definition. Uh, In this context, we can see mercy as forgiveness, right? Someone merits a punishment for an offense, uh, but the offended party uh, decides to forego uh, the punishment. They decide to forego delivering the consequence, right? This would be um, analogous to, let's say you get a speeding ticket, and you go to court, and the judge uh, forgives the fine, or you uh, have a, a late charge or a, a, a bounce check fee at your bank, something like that, and they remove it from the account. They forgive it, remove it. They have mercy on you, independent of whether or not you you haven't earned anything. It's just the offender knows that they've done the wrong thing, and the transgressed party decides that I'm going to show mercy on you. I'm not going to deliver this punishment that you deserve. Now, mercy also means taking care of others. Um, and, and it's not people who have necessarily committed an offense, but um, it's the, um, uh, thanks, Sabrina, that's good to know. Um, and I guess that's up to the platforms. It looks like Getter is buffering too much. Um, it's great that on, on Facebook it doesn't. Uh, so in taking care of others who haven't committed an offense is also another uh, way to describe Mercy. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked, Who's, who is that? And he said, uh, he told the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Which we're all familiar with. This guy was beaten and robbed and you know, and, and the Samaritan people came along and, and ignored him. And then finally, the Samaritan comes along who was hated by the Jews and takes care of the guy, binds up his wounds and feeds him and gives him lodging, right? And at the end of the story, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of the three men who came upon the, the Samaritan was his neighbor? And the lawyer responds, he who showed mercy on him. Now, the, the Samaritan hadn't offended the uh, or the guy beaten hadn't offended the Samaritan, right? It's that uh, the Samaritan was in need, and the the Jewish man showed mercy on him. So in Philippians two uh, twenty seven, it says, "For indeed, uh, he was sick almost unto death." This is talking about Trophimus, and uh, he says, "But God had mercy on him." And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So neither Trophimus nor Paul in this case had committed an offense against God, but God had mercy on him. He met his need. And so I want you to take notice here of the second part of the beatitude, because I think this is the the more important part. It says, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And it seems that what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to receive mercy, you must first show mercy. In other words, as we see throughout Scripture, we find the concept that receiving mercy is contingent on showing mercy. 
And there's a mistaken idea that uh, is popular in the church today that the promises of God are absolutely unconditional. The idea that God offers everything to us independent of what we do. And in my view, this is simply a mistaken idea. A covenant is an agreement between two parties, right? Some would put forth the idea that the covenant of God with Abraham, with David, with Noah, and, and the new covenant of Jesus are promises that, of God that he makes with no requirements of the recipients. Well, biblical truth is that on the, the uh, is that to receive the blessings of God is always conditional, and I'm going to show you that with a few verses. And of course, as soon as I say that, someone will say that that this makes it a matter of earning these things. And making an agreement with someone or extending an offer to them contingent on them fulfilling their end of the covenant doesn't mean they've earned it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're walking down the street and you encounter someone who is begging for money, right? And you can tell by their appearance that they're probably homeless, right? They're probably penniless. They probably don't have sufficient food or sufficient finances to meet their basic needs. So being moved with compassion, you pull a $50 bill out of your wallet and you give it to them and you say, I'll give you this money as long as you agree not to use it for drugs and alcohol. And now in saying that, has the beggar earned your $50? Well, of course not. They haven't done anything to earn it. They've done nothing to merit your generosity. It's a free gift from you to them, but you're attaching some strings to the gift in agreeing to use the money for things besides drugs and alcohol. They haven't merited the receipt of the money. It's simply that you've attached some strings to it, right? It, you know, for example, a lot of people buy a, a car for their, for their kids when they're in, you know, in high school or, or going to college or they pay somebody's tuition, right? And they say, Hey, I'm going to do this for you. But, as, you know, as part of the agreement, you're not going to use this car for X, Y, Z. You're not going to take your friends out drinking in it. You're not going to get behind the wheel and drink. You're not going to, you know, I'm going to give you this tuition money on the condition that you go to class, on the condition that you get good grades. It doesn't mean that going to class and getting good grades earns the tuition. It means that it's a condition for continued receipt. And this is exactly the way God gives gifts through his covenants. His covenants are always if-then statements. Now, the promises made to Abraham and to Israel are conditional upon them doing certain things. And one of these appears in Genesis 17. Some would have us believe that the promises made to Abraham and his descendants are absolutely without condition. God tells Abraham on, on several occasions, Genesis 12, 13, and 15, that he'll inherit the land, that his descendants will number as the stars of the, uh, in the heavens or the sand of the sea, and God is establishing what will happen. But he hasn't yet talked about the conditions for it. It doesn't mean the conditions aren't don't exist. It just means that they're not being described in these places. So we need to see the whole story of Abraham and not just take a handful of verses out of context. Further on in the story, if we look down in chapter 17 and then again in chapter 22, we'll see that God establishes the conditions for these promises. So let me share with you the relevant verses. Uh, Genesis 17, verses 13 and 14, he says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. 
He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so what God is saying here is, yeah, your descendants are going to be numbered as the sand of the sea, but not those who break the covenant. They won't be counted in this. Uh, further on in, in, in Genesis, in chapter 22, verses 16 to 18, here's what, what it says. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, this is Abraham taking Isaac up to be sacrificed, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The promises of God to Abraham were not unconditional. They were also not merited. Therefore, they were grace. Abraham didn't earn these blessings, but Abraham did have to follow the conditions that God put on it. They had to, to practice circumcision, keep the law. His willingness to sacrifice Isaac didn't merit God making him the patriarch. It was something that God saw as a condition of being a patriarch was that Abraham would be obedient. And these these were among many of the conditions that were that were placed for uh, Abraham and other Jews to receive uh, the blessings of God. They had to keep their part of the covenant. They had to keep the law. Now, salvation for the Christian is also conditional. How many times does Jesus say, if you continue in my words, if you do what I say, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I teach, right? Romans 10 Verses 9 to 13, these are some of the most famous verses in Christianity, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To be saved, according to Paul, requires the confession of the mouth, the belief of the heart, the calling on the name of the Lord. Now, none of these earn your salvation for you, okay? It's not as though somehow confessing, believing, and calling on Jesus, if I do that, God owes me salvation. When we earn something, it's an agreement between like an employer and employee, right? If you do this, you know, I will do this, but it's, you know, it's a wage, right? This is not a wage. It's a conditional gift, right? God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. But obtaining salvation does have some conditions. I have to confess. I have to believe. I have to call on his name. And I have to, to the best of my ability, be obedient, right? I can't confess and believe and call on his name and then willfully disobey everything he says. That doesn't work, right? And, and so in this beatitude, receiving mercy is contingent on being merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's just no way around it. The prophets, Jesus, and the apostles also taught it. So here are some examples. In the Lord's Prayer, uh, he says, and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are asking God to forgive us in the same way that we forgive others. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tacks on one more statement for good measure. And here's what it says, Matthew 6, 14 to 15. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What? God won't forgive us unless we forgive first? Receiving mercy is conditional on being merciful. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Psalm 18.25, With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. To receive mercy, we have to give mercy, right? We have to be merciful. Matthew 18, 34, 35, here's Jesus again, he says, and this parable, and he says, and his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures. This is the guy who, who his master had forgiven him debt, but he wouldn't forgive the debts of others. And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father will also do to each of you if from his heart he does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So, Jesus is telling us here, you, if you want to be forgiven by God, you have to forgive the smaller offenses that other people do to you compared to the big offenses you've done to a holy God. In Mark 11 to 26, Jesus says this, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And so the, the balance of Scripture, the body of, of, of evidence here is that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you want to receive the mercy of God, you must be merciful towards others. This is forgiving. It is not being offended. It is relieving their affliction. Uh, verse eight. And by the way, if you're, if you're, uh, still participating in the in the podcast, uh, whether audio video on one of the channels now, this is a great time to share the broadcast because obviously you're seeing value in it. Uh, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Now this encapsulates a spiritual principle that really does transcend time and it holds a lot of deep significance. And we all know what pure means, right? It means unadulterated, right? Consisting of only one substance, right? For example, we, we talk about jewelry that's made of pure gold. Uh, many chefs want to use uh, pure olive oil or pure honey, right? Uh, my boss at work, is from Greece. And some of his family members grow olives up in the, the high hills of Greece. And after his last trip there, he gave me a small jar of olive oil that his family produces. And when he gave it to me, he said, look, this is 100% pure. And he told me he was with them when they harvested the olives and put them into the machine that extracts the oil, which they do right there in the olive grove, right after picking the olives. And likewise, I have a friend who is a beekeeper. And uh, my friend Bob is a beekeeper, and every year he provides us with a jar or two of pure honey from his hives every year. This is pure, unadulterated, right? So what does Jesus mean 
by a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, we have to consider the cultural and historical context in which Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. The Jewish audience, these guys were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, right? They would have recognized the emphasis on purity and holiness through the religious traditions, okay? Those who kept the law and followed it were considered to be purer than others, and there were, but there was a lot of, and there was a lot of emphasis on the concept of defilement in the law and in practice, right? The law was full of conditions by one, which one was defiled or unclean, right? You touched a dead body, you were unclean till sundown. A woman was unclean during her menses. Uh, people with a, a, a boil or a blistering sore were considered unclean, right? They were kept out of society. So this idea of purity and cleanliness was, was very much a part of society. However, this concept of purity uh, did include the, the innermost thoughts of the heart, but this was a minor focus in the religious leadership of the day. The religious leaders of the day almost promoted the idea that it didn't matter what you did outside of religious behavior as long as you practiced the appropriate religious behaviors. And we see this in some people who call themselves Christians today. They engage in all kinds of sinful behavior while maintaining a, a patina, if you will, of religiosity that they somehow believe absolves them of their sinfulness. Uh, for example, the mafia crime families, right? These, are, these people are involved in all kinds of organized criminal behavior, and yet very often they adhere to the rituals of Catholicism as though somehow these behaviors are sufficient to absolve them of what they've done wrong, what they the crimes they commit. Now, in Jewish tradition, the heart represented the core of a person's being. It was the the seat of emotions, right? The the, the seat of thoughts and intentions, and the call to be pure in heart by Jesus here challenged people to maintain integrity in their lives, challenged them to align their thoughts and desires with God's standards, and this beatitude was kind of a radical shift in focus from a mere external adherence to the laws and rituals to a holistic commitment to righteousness, right? The righteousness that we are supposed to hunger and thirst for. And we see the psalmist say, and this wasn't new information, it was a shift in focus. We see the psalmist say in, in uh, Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Later in the same psalm, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, it says, the psalmist says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Further on in Psalms, in, in 24, 3 and 4, it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So the concept of purity of heart was absolutely a concept in Judaism, but it had lost focus, and Jesus is bringing the focus back. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what does this mean, for they shall see God? It, it suggests a direct correlation between the purity of your heart and the ability to perceive the divine, right? Sin is often viewed and, and is correctly understood as a barrier that separates humanity from God. The call to purity now e echoes the, the biblical theme of redemption, right, and restoration. 
the promise of seeing God implies not only in the future when we get to heaven, right, when we're with Jesus, it implies a reality in our present experience. And so we have to recognize that no one has, quote unquote, seen God, right? In the book of James, we find that God is spirit. God quite literally fills the universe. And since he has no physical body, there's simply no way to, quote unquote, see God, right? But we see things that are uh, images of God or reflections of God. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are uh, watching uh, a football game and you're watching it on television and your friend says to you, did you see the football game? And you say, yes. Well, you, you didn't. You weren't there. You didn't see the football game. What you saw were images transmitted and and edited, right? The, the, the commercials come on and, and what you saw was not the same thing as a person who was there who was an eyewitness, right? And so what we see when we see God is we see things that represent God, that things that show us God, things that help us know who God is. Good morning, Daryl, and good morning, uh, Christy and Sabrina. Thanks for joining. Um, so, you know, in the Old Testament, we have uh, examples of, of people who, quote unquote, saw God, right? Ezekiel's vision in the opening chapter of his book is a vision of God. In Genesis 32, 24, it says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This is often understood to be uh, God wrestling with Jacob. Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, you know, guys, God doesn't need a chair, okay? God doesn't have a physical body that he needs to rest on a chair. These are called theophanies, okay? Times when God appeared to men in one form or another. Sometimes these appearances were, were actual in the world like the man who wrestled with Jacob. Sometimes they were in a vision, as with Ezekiel. But none of these are a complete view of God because that is simply impossible. No one can actually see all of God. We can see God representing himself in different ways in different places. Well, Paul tells us about this in Romans 1.19. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I would say this, that if you're looking, you can see God all around you, but you can't do this without a pure heart. Now, does this mean a perfectly pure heart? It does not. But it does mean a heart whose orientation is toward God, a heart that desires to be pure, a heart that desires to cease from sinfulness. When you desire to uh, be with God, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you begin to see God all around you. Why is it that the Christian can look at the sunset, look at the blooming of a, of a flower or the structure of a singular cell under a microscope and see the glory of God? And the atheist cannot see God in this at all. Why is that, that the atheist can't see God when the Christian can see God in all of these things? Well, you know, on the day Jesus was baptized, it says there was a voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God. And it also says that some said it thundered. So there was a difference in perception from the same 
information. And the difference in perception was based upon, I believe, people's orientation toward things of God or not. Now, Paul answers us about how this can be. In Romans, same chapter, chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, atheism does not arise out of a scientific analysis or out of observation. It results out of a rebellion to a God-given conscience. Those who rebel against God love their sin, and they can't bear the thought of being without it. The reality is to submit to God would mean radical change for a lot of people. James 1, 14 to 15 says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Paul describes the result of this in Romans 1, 24 to 25. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what Paul is saying here is that people worship their own conscience. They worship their own values. They decide that what they want to do is the right thing to do, and it becomes an idol to them. For some people, this is sex. For some, it's alcohol. For some, it's it's greed. It's uh, you know possessions. It's all kinds of things except the things that God would orient us toward. And if they desire those things more than they desire God, God gives them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. And so I would suggest this, that through a pure heart, one oriented to God and hungry and thirsting for righteousness, believers gain a clearer understanding of God's character. They discern discern his will more effectively and experience a deeper communion with him. And I think this is what it means when it says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We shall see God in our lives. We shall see God in the world. We shall see God in everything around us. And most importantly, we will see him in our conscience as God speaks to us. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Having a pure heart is a searching for God. And so the pursuit of a pure heart involves this continuous process of self-examination. Self-examination, repentance, and transformation, right? It challenges us to address our hidden motives, our hidden attitudes, the sins that may lurk within the recesses of our heart. So let me give you a personal example. Mrs. O'Kelly is a tea drinker, okay? She's also a person who sticks to her routine. And most days after working out, she'll come downstairs to the kitchen right around 8.30. It's almost, you can almost set your watch by it. And Often, I will start the teapot so that when she gets downstairs, she has hot tea water. Well, that sounds pretty nice, right? Uh, You know, boy, Brian, you're really generous and caring. Well, here's a challenge I've offered myself continually. Is my heating up the tea water for her out of kindness toward her and out of a desire to bless her? Or is it so that I'll get brownie points and benefit from that? 
Now, I suppose it can be both, but realistically, many of us are often motivated to do good things for personal gain. Even oftentimes we are motivated to serve God because we think that that is going to give us the ticket to heaven. It's not because he's worth it. It's not because we want him to be honored. It's not because we want him to be glorified in the world and his kingdom to expand. It's very often because of what we perceive as benefits for ourselves, right? So are we worshiping God because he merits it and we desire him to be honored? Or do we worship him just in hope of future gain for ourselves after death or in the end times or even in the present, right? There are people who tithe because not because they want to honor God, they tithe because what they want is to the the belief that their tithe will be multiplied back to them. And and that's a promise, but the reality is that we should give to God, give to the work of spreading the gospel independent of whether it's multiplied back to us. And by the way, this is a good time to say if you want to support the show, I would love it if you helped. Uh, it does cost me uh, out of my pocket about 150 bucks a month to do right now, and it would be great if um, I'm getting about a third of that uh, coming in support. It'd be great if if uh, if there was even more uh, beyond the cost so that I could spend it on uh, advertising on Facebook, YouTube, other places so people would know about the broadcast. Um, there's the only commercial. Um, practical purity, if you will, encompasses moral integrity, honesty, a genuine desire for righteousness, and we are called to live transparently with a consistency between our public and private lives. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. Jesus says there are those who say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Didn't we, you know, proclaim your name and practice, you know, all these things in your name? And he says, I never knew you. There has to be a consistency between our public and private lives. The Pharisees had the public life figured out, the private life not so much, and so Jesus comes along with this call to purity. It also extends to our interpersonal relationships. It emphasizes the importance of forgiveness, of humility, and fostering unity within the body of Christ and in meeting the needs of others. There is a transformative power in having a pure heart. It should deepen our appreciation for the profound connection between purity and the ability to perceive and experience God. And as believers, we must understand that as we realize the ongoing need for inner transformation, for alignment with God's standards, and as we perceive God better through that, we become more godly through that, and this spreads the gospel. And so I would say that that by so doing, we can have the assurance that we shall see God in the present reality of our life, of course, and with the hope of future eternal fellowship. So with that, we will close the the Footlight broadcast for today. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Those of you checking it out on Getter, on Rumble, on X, on Facebook, and on YouTube, and of course the audio podcast, which is where most of the uh, audience is on the on the program. So remember, you can get that on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your audio content. Uh, next week will be a week off. I'm going to travel to North Carolina and Philadelphia to visit kids and grandkids, which I'm super jazzed about uh, seeing them and spending some time uh, building relationship uh, with them. So thanks again for your time and attention. Love you all. Appreciate you uh, spending time with me this morning. 
and I will see you in two weeks, Lord willing.